So the text for the sermon is John chapter 1. We're departing from 2 Corinthians for just a few weeks as we approach the celebration of Christmas. I hope you don't mind. John chapter 1 is one of my favorite texts to think through and preach during the Christmas season. Two years ago, I preached a a little bit through John chapter 1 as well as we approached Christmas because it's so foundational to understanding what God is doing at that time of our earth's history. Now, of course, today this is a time when the whole world celebrates Christmas, and I think that's wonderful. People all over the world of almost every faith pause and celebrate Christmas. They don't know why, but we know why. It, it, to me, is just a, a slight shadow of what will happen someday when Christ returns and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In a way, the, the celebration of Christmas by even pagans and people of other religions, it kind of foreshadows that, uh, that reality that when Christ returns, all knees will bow. It's not a matter of of people making Jesus their Lord. Jesus is Lord. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess the truth of that reality. So we know this reality. We know that Jesus is Lord. And we know that He came to earth to save sinners like us. But during this season, it seems to be overshadowed. And and we all fight against this as Christians. We know that Santa Claus really has nothing to do with Jesus. But there's this, this syncretism where, where pagan and even evil practices kind of worm their way into the church and into our doctrine and into our faith. And, and we want to push back against that. An example of this might be, you've probably seen this, the nativity and uh, Santa Claus kneeling before the little manger. That's, that's syncretism. That has, Santa has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus Christ. And I'm not against Santa Claus. I mean, do whatever you want. But the point of Christmas is not Santa. And it's not mistletoe. And it's not Christmas trees. It's the incarnate Christ. So John understood this. And he's explaining to us in John chapter 1. Just who Jesus is. So would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Preserved by the Holy Spirit throughout the ages for you this morning. This is John chapter 1. Hear God's holy word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray for God's blessing upon our sermon. Heavenly Father, we do come to you now as weak and feeble people who really do desire to know you more. Lord, the request this morning is twofold. First, that you would make my words and the meditation of my heart pleasing in your sight, that you would strike a straight blow with a very crooked stick, that the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would burst forth from my words. And secondly, that you would change hearts, that hearts would be supple and ready to receive the word of God, that you would change the hard-hearted parts of each one of us, that you would comfort the afflicted and you would afflict the comfortable by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ incarnate is the title of the sermon. We're going to look at a number of things that we see in this passage. We'll see that Jesus is God. He's eternal God. He's the same essence as the Father. He's the creator God. We'll see why he came. I'm going to kind of walk through the who, what, where, when, why, how of Christ's incarnation. We'll look at the dark world in which he came. We'll look at the word that he spoke and the reason He had to come. If you look at John 20, 31, John tells us his purpose in writing the gospel. It's very helpful. I don't know of any other book where the the thesis statement is written somewhere clearly like this. But in John 20, 31, John says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I would argue that that's not just the thesis statement for the book of John. It's the thesis statement for this book. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and may have life in his name. But what we read for the text of the sermon, verses 1 through 18, and I'll probably cover in detail just maybe the first nine verses and only reference the last nine. This is John's prologue to the gospel. And the prologue kind of has... It's, it's, like, it's like an overture in a symphony. It's the very beginning. It kind of shows you what's coming through the next 30 minutes of symphony orchestra or the overture in Handel's Messiah. It's kind of a foretaste of what's coming. And in this particular prologue to the Gospel of John, we see something like that. He's showing all that's coming for the rest of the book. So he tells us who this... Jesus is and why he had to come and and what was the situation that brought this about and what did he do? 
All of this is covered. So let's just jump right in. It's interesting that in many of the other accounts of Jesus, well, in the three others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospel writers there begin with something like a, a, a narrative, a description of how Jesus came to the earth. And we're familiar with them. And next week we'll talk more about one of those. And uh, of course, at our candlelight service, the, the Wednesday before Christmas, we'll read the entire account of the birth of Christ before we light the candles. But John doesn't do any of that. He doesn't start with a genealogy. He doesn't start with an account of Jesus' birth. Nothing like that. He goes straight to the heart of the issue. Jesus was God. He was God. Now, Christians hear that, and we don't think much of it. If you hear it, you believe it. You just go, okay, Jesus was God. I understand. But it's a powerful truth. And I hope by the end of this that you will begin to grasp just a little bit more about what God did to save this world. To bring His own people to Himself. In verse 1 he writes, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. So if you know your Bible, even a little bit, these words should sound familiar. Where else do you hear these words? In the beginning. The very first verse of the Bible, right? In the beginning. And 200 years before Christ was born, some Jewish theologians translated the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, into Greek. And Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, is, is the same exact as we see here. In the beginning. The same exact Greek words they used. In arche. So John is purposely pointing every reader to the very beginning of the Bible. This is where we're starting, in the beginning. But there's a big difference. When Moses wrote in the beginning in Genesis 1, what's he talking about? He's talking about the creation of the universe. This is what God did to, in the very beginning to bring about the universe. This is what he did in six days. And it was all very good. But when John says in the beginning, he's going much, much farther back than the beginning of the universe. John's pointing to a time before anything existed. He's pointing to a time where there was just the eternal God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. To a time before time. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Christ. We know from verses 14 to 18 that the Word is Christ. It's talking about Jesus. So Genesis talks about the creation, but John is talking about all of the time before creation, when the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost existed together in perfect harmony and unity and love. They needed nothing. If you think God created the universe because He needed some friendship or something, you are seriously mistaken. They needed nothing. Perfectly content. Perfectly sufficient in their own love. And this is Jesus. This is when He was. Forever. Infinitely forever. Before the creation of the world. And where was He? Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. 
In other words, Jesus, this word, is eternal. There's no beginning, there's no end. He's eternal God. He was with God, forever with God. In verse 18, it says he was in the bosom of his father or near his father. In Greek, literally, it's in the bosom of his father. It's close. So close, of course, when Thomas said, show us the father. Jesus said what? Have I been with you for so long? Don't you realize if you've seen me, you've seen the father? This is an intimate relationship that John is describing. He's in the bosom of his Father forever, infinitely forever before anything. This is Jesus. That is Jesus. But he also says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Let's talk for a moment about the Word. Why does he, I mean, of course it's talking about Christ. It has to be talking about Christ. That's John's whole point. Verses 14 through 18 tell us. This is Jesus. He's describing Jesus whom John knew intimately. John was the one who leaned upon Jesus' side. John is the one who described himself all the time as the disciple Jesus loved. Of course, Jesus felt love for all of his apostles. I don't think he had favorites. But John knew that love. He grasped a hold of that love. And he could say that he was the one that Jesus loved. I think when you understand Christ clearly, when you understand the Father clearly, you can say that about yourself as well. Not in a prideful way or not in a prioritizing way, but in a way that just acknowledges, I'm the one that Jesus loves. But he says he's the Word. John says, in the beginning was the Word. Why did he use this word, word? In Greek, it's logos. Why did he say, in the beginning was logos? Well, there's this, there's this, Jewish, this Jewish cultural history that we need to understand, this theological uh, richness that we have to grasp a hold of to see what John's doing here. And it's not difficult to understand. In Genesis 1, how did God bring everything into existence? By His Word. He spoke it. And all through the Old Testament, I'll just give you a few quick examples, but all through the Old Testament, the Word is identified with Jesus, with with God Himself. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that purpose, that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Psalm 107, 19 to 20. I love this. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So Dr. Luke Wayne, theologian, says 
The Jews of the day would understand the word of God, the logos of God, to be more than just speech, more than just words or language. The word was seen as God's power. It was personal. It was alive. The word could be distinguished from God, but the word could also be said to be God. So closely was in the Jewish mind, was it connected to God? So by calling Jesus the word, John is tapping into that, that theological culture and that history. And he's being extremely precise. He's using that purposely to show that this is, this is the eternal God, the, the immortal, invisible, the only wise God. This is Jesus. And think about the, the other side of the coin. If he had said, in the beginning was God, and God became a man. There could be the implication that God left heaven and came to earth and was no longer in heaven, but now he's on earth. But by associating Jesus with Logos, with the word, the eternal transcendent word of God. John is communicating that Jesus, even as a baby, was still filling the entire universe in his divine nature. He leaves no doubt in the Jewish mind that Jesus, the word, the Logos, became man, but continued to hold the universe together by the word of his power, as Paul said, and continued to be God. That's part of the reason why he says the word. There's more that we'll discuss later. So this word, this Jesus, this incarnate God, shared the very nature of God, Philippians 2 tells us. Hebrews 1 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. That's who he is. The New Testament, the Bible is clear that the incarnate Christ is God. Not just a little bit of God, not just a slice of God, not just uh, God who's, who's, who's somehow separated from the Father. He is God, the baby in the manger was still transcendent over all of his creation. The word was God. It's staggering. I'm sure I could talk and we could probably discuss that phrase, the word was God, for a long time. He's not just a man. He's God. But there's more. In verse 3 he says, All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Or literally, without him was not one thing made that was made. Nothing was made apart from the word, from Jesus. And again, John is seeming to be leaning on Genesis chapter 1, where Moses said that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And John's saying, hey, that, that's... That's Jesus. That's who was there in the beginning and created the heavens and the earth. He made all things. All things. Nothing that was created was created apart from Him. He's the agent of creation. He's unlike any created thing because He is the agent of creation. Matter, created things are not eternal, but the Word is eternal. He's the creator. He created. 
the entire world. So John is explicitly teaching that Jesus is God. He's the eternal creator, the almighty God. He's the same essence as the Father. The same essence as the Father. Read the Athanasian Creed when you go home. It's a wonderful testimony of of this truth as the, the early church tried to formulate what that meant, that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit had the same essence. The Athanasian Creed is, is wonderful. And this is what John is saying. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Yes, they're three persons, they're one God, but so closely is their relationship that they're one God. Okay, so Jesus is God. Why did He come? Why? Because there was great darkness over the earth. There was a need of a Savior. The world was dark after the fall when the the first Adam, Jesus is called the second Adam by Paul, but the first Adam, he failed. He followed Satan. He listened to his wife rather than to God And the world fell under the power of darkness. And this darkness has blinded the eyes of everyone in it. Any hope of of stepping toward God, of understanding God, or hearing truth, it's all gone. We are all in darkness. 2 Corinthians 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. After the fall, we're all blind. Ephesians 2, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins when you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You see, after the fall, this darkness prevents mankind from finding God, from even desiring God. That's the devastation of sin and darkness. Apart from God's grace, all hope would have been lost. And each one of you needs to know, more importantly than anything else, you need to know that you know your Savior, that you know the child in the manger, that you know the crucified Savior. If you don't know, you're blind. You're living in darkness. It's the most important piece of knowledge you could ever have, and not just to know it, but then to believe it, to trust in Christ. But in every church, there remains a a group of people who are still blind, who are coming to church for whatever reason. In the power of the enemy, with the darkness overwhelming their souls, filled with bitterness and envy and pride, unable to see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, And Nicodemus came to him and said, Are you the Messiah? In so many words. And he said, Unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. You see, it's a matter of darkness and blindness and being able to see. And blind people don't make themselves better. Babies don't make themselves born. This is a work of God. So into this darkness, into this dark and hopeless situation, the light bursts forth. 
In Isaiah 9, God promised to send a child born of a virgin. And he begins the prophecy by saying, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, the light has shone upon them. In the hymn we sang, it said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. And what happened? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke in the dungeon flamed with light. That happened at a macro level when Christ came to the earth. The darkness was, was shattered by the light. And Jesus, God himself, came down into his creation to make everything new again. It's amazing. He came to bring us life and light John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, nor will it ever. If you are following the banner of Jesus Christ, let me just encourage you. Praise God that he has brought you into his family, and you're on the right team. When you think of the lostness of our world, when you grieve over the lostness of your own loved ones or your friends or your family. Let these words of John encourage you that this light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There is hope. Pray. Continue to pray for those who are lost among you. There's nobody so far removed from sin, by sin and rebellion from God, that God cannot snatch them from the fire. Do you think your salvation was any less of a miracle than anyone else's? You were just as blind, you were just as lost, just as wicked before God, and He saved you. You were born again if you have faith in Christ. So take courage for your friends and your loved ones and your your family that are lost and blind and dead, pray and be diligent to pray that God would open their eyes. Regarding this great illuminating and wonderful light of Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, as we've been preaching through 2 Corinthians 4, speaking of Paul's own meager efforts, and of course it's never the preacher, it's never the man presenting the gospel. And anyone who preaches already knows that. But Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what God does. And this is what God began to do in a a massive expansion of His kingdom promises when Christ came to the earth. Out of darkness, God loves to bring light. And he made his light shine in your heart for his own glory. He had to come. He had to come to the earth. The incarnate Christ had to come. And what did he do? His third point. He revealed the Father. He spoke the words of the Father to the world. He came in the flesh and revealed the Father to the world. All of the Bible points to this. It's not just the New Testament. It doesn't start in Matthew 
All of Scripture points to the coming of Jesus. It was the the pinnacle of all of human history. Everything led up to that and everything follows from that. Jesus Christ coming into history. If you stretched out all of human history in a straight line across a football field, there would be one pinnacle and one pinnacle alone. And that would be Jesus Christ at the very center of it, standing up and saying, follow me. The Bible is a story of God redeeming a, a hopelessly lost people and speaking words of life to a humanity who could never see God, who couldn't communicate God apart from His grace. And this is where I want to look at the word word one more time, just very quickly. In Hebrew, it's the word debar. I mean, you don't need to remember this, of course. And the Hebrew word for the Holy of Holies is debir. Very, very closely tied to debar, for word. So that the Holy of Holies was, in a, in a sense, the word house. It could be, could be obviously and literally translated the word house. This is where God revealed himself to his people. John is certainly pointing to the tabernacle, the temple, the word house, the Holy of Holies. Where God met man where the blood was sprinkled upon the ark once a year on the Day of Atonement. And what was in the ark? The Ten Commandments. The word for Ten Commandments in Hebrew is Debarim. The words. The Ten Words. So the tabernacle enshrines the Word of God in it, where God met man, but it was hidden. You remember, nobody could go in there except the priest and that once a year. But when the Word came in the flesh, it was for all of us. It's beautiful. No longer hidden. And John uses the the word tabernacled among us. When he said he dwelt among us. That Christ came and dwelt among us in John 1. The Greek word is he tabernacled among us. He's, He's reminding us that God had always tabernacled with his people. But now he's here with us. For us to see. And no one has ever seen God. Except him. Who made him known. And what was hidden in the Holy of Holies. Is now known. He revealed the Father. To us. Again it's, it's special to remember that. The Greek word that's translated reveal. Literally means exegete. He explains in detail. That's what it means to exegete the scripture. That's what I'm supposed to do as. A preacher is take the scripture and make you understand it, what it means. Every detail about the scripture, I'm trying to impart it to you by the the grace of God. And this is what Jesus, John said, came to do to the Father. He exegetes the Father. He makes the Father known to us. This is why Jesus is called the Word. He's illuminating the Father. Finally, he's, he's incarnate. He's completely incarnate. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. The word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. He had to come be like us. Friends, he couldn't, 
God could not send an angel or something to save us. It had to be a man. And he did. He came. He had to come. The law was broken by man. The law had to be obeyed by a man. And Edward says that because the stage of man's fall and ruin was this earth, so the stage of God's redemption would be this earth. He sent his son into this miserable, undone world to restore it. And he came to fulfill all the covenant promises of God to Abraham and Moses and David and to all of his elect people. He came not on a spur of the moment, not as a, as a plan B or a plan C. This was the plan from the beginning and he came. This is why the Bible often says of Jesus that he was, he was crucified before the foundation of the world. And he's our savior from the, from the foundation of the world. He came all the way down to us. He ate like us, and he, he drank like us, and he slept like us, and he grew tired like us, and he felt pain like us, and he sweat like us, and he worked like us, and he talked and walked. He was so much a man that he was able to be kind of unnoticed as he walked about in society. He didn't look extraordinary. The creation of the world was a wonderful thing. When God created the world, that's amazing, of course. But it's nothing compared to the incarnation of God. When God became man. When God entered into space and time in flesh and blood. And this incarnation, this is the conclusion, this incarnation is the guarantee that salvation is real. That our salvation is real and it's solid and it's... It's completely in the hands of God, and that's the best place it can be. He's accessible to all mankind because he came as a man. His humanity is real. And in his deity, we know that he actually came from God. This actually is God. He was eternally God, and his power is still critical to the whole universe. He came to live on the earth in such a way as to still always fulfill the earth as he all fulfill the earth as he always had from the very beginning. So when you think of the incarnation, remember that Jesus is God and he came to save, to shine light into a dark world. He came down not in pomp and, and circumstance and glory, he came down as a servant, as a slave. And this is most fascinating and most miraculous. He came in the womb of a poor girl named Mary. The miracle of Christmas is that the baby in the manger is the almighty, eternal God. St. Augustine in 411 AD wrote this as part of his Christmas sermon, I'll just read it to you as we close. Man's maker was made man. <laughs> that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breasts. That the bread, capital B, might be hungry. 
The fountain, thirst. The light, sleep. The way, be tired from the journey. Don't you wish you had a preacher like that? (laughs) That's pretty awesome. He came that the truth might be accused by false witnesses. The judge of the living and the dead be judged by a mortal judge. Justice be sentenced by the unjust. The teacher be beaten with whips. The vine be crowned crowned with thorns. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might be weak. That he who makes well might be wounded. That life might die. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are overwhelmed when we consider the wonder of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we begin to approach the celebration of our Lord's birth, that you would enliven in our own hearts an understanding of the grace and the mercy, the love that you display when you send your own Son out of the glory of heaven to come to earth. Lord, if we were to become an insect, it would be just a fraction, just a a minuscule portion of the condescension that was shown by God the Son when He came to earth. Lord, let this encourage our souls. May we all catch a glimpse of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ and be encouraged. We pray that you would quicken our souls, that you would save our souls, that you would enlighten our souls and and encourage our souls, that your word would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray.